This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, I'm Alan Katz. Welcome back to the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, The Making of Bordello of Blood. This is Episode 7, Some Tales About Tales. That's Tales from the Crypt, of course. As I hope this podcast has demonstrated, life, like the making of Bordello of Blood, is utterly filled with unexpected twists and turns. This podcast's very existence is one of those twists or turns. I'm not sure which yet. Whatever. The point is, doing the podcast produced a ton of unexpected results, pretty much all of them wonderful. Just getting back in touch with these terrific people was worth the price of admission and every bit of hard work making this podcast has entailed. In this episode, I thought I'd just put you, the audience, in the room with us while we hold a little Tales from the Crypt reunion. Some of us haven't seen each other in a long, long time. God, you keep getting skinnier. <laughs> Alan does? Yeah. No, uh, Todd. 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 Oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get to Alan's size. I think I think I'm gonna like, last time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure you want that, man. You have to. Oh. Hang, we might have to chop you off at the knees. <laughs> you, you'll end up looking like like Gollum. Hey, he made a lot of money. <laughs> very well in Hollywood. Well, good to see you guys. Oh my nice god, to see you. great! I, I can't tell you what what a pleasure it is to see all of you in one place at one well one place at, well, at one time. Yeah. Before we got started in earnest, Victoria Burroughs, our casting director, mentioned that one of our team, Victoria's casting associate, Jean Scotchamaro, just passed away. So I don't know if I told you guys, not to be Debbie Downer, but um, remember Jean Scotchamaro who worked yes. with us? Yes. She died. She died. Oh, wow. Yes. From what? Uh, I'm, well, I mentioned her in the last podcast. We That's did. wardrobe supervisor Randall Thrupp. How much I appreciated Victoria and Jean. Yeah, you she did. was just incredible. She was such a doll. She was such a nice person to work with and so accessible. Yeah. And I really have nothing but the highest remarks to make about Jean. How, yeah. how, how long did, did you and Jean work together, Victoria? Oh, years and years. We, we must have known each other over 25 and worked. I can't remember the exact amount of time, but, you know, with Crypt and then um, Walker, Texas Ranger. But, you know, she was you oh. know, one, one of my besties for many years. And she just went to sleep on the 30th of March and her roommate found her dead at 2 p.m. the next day. Oh, gosh. Wow. Yeah. Well, so they think it was just, uh, you know, her heart stopped. So. Wow. Yeah. It was a surprise to everybody. So anyway, um, I'm just was, you know, I just was thinking about her because she was with me with you guys on yeah. you know, tales. So. And the two of you set such a great atmosphere and you were so accessible because you know you and i and gene would sit down and go through it's like okay randall who do you want for background and we would have but it was just like okay i knew specifically like for especially that carnival episode i remember how much fun we had piecing oh. together the background for that 1930s yeah. carnival episode which looked mm -hmm. beautiful it yeah. was with joan chen oh my god yeah what yeah. a great looking episode that was and a lot of that had to do with the casting of, you know, all of us collab, but again, it was a, this collaboration. And that's what I've stressed over and over again, what a great collaboration Tales from the Crypt was, because we all liked each other and we all depended on each other. 
And it was just, it was if, a great if you remember, but, If you remember, Randall, that episode, the circus one was uh, required more collaboration than almost any other episode I can remember because we fired the director uh, not what? too Who's long. I forget who the original director was, but I think it, we ended up getting, I think Rodden Flender stepped in as yeah. the last minute person, but he was not the original director. Oh. And so I, my memory is of a, we, we fired the director because they, whatever their vision was, it, it wasn't, it, it was someone I think that Joel brought in, it, it, it might've been. And uh, we had a, a, an emergency meeting on a Sunday at Gill's house. Yeah. To talk about how to do that thing. And we decided we were going to, we, we would do the whole thing in, in studio that we would create the carnival grounds. Yeah. That Greg would create our carnival grounds and we would play the whole thing really within this confined space because, uh, you know, again, I think we were also, uh, we, we had a, a, a time issue as well. I, I think we had to do this in fewer than five days, if I recall. Yeah. Hmm. But it was a beautiful looking episode as far as, you know, like Greg did with the art direction and the production design. I mean, it was a beautiful episode. Yeah, and yeah. Joan Chen, I still have photographs of Joan Chen, of which just, oh, my God. I mean, breathtaking. Yeah. And it wasn't it Joan Chen, Ernie Hudson? Yeah, Ernie. And yes. uh, John Laughlin. And yes. what we were so happy about is that we were able to make it diverse. It wasn't written that way, but we were able to yes. create it that way. And everybody loved the idea. So again, I'm with Randall. I just, the collaboration yep. and how much we all adored working together. It was just, every day was a pleasure to come to work. It really was. Yes. Truly it really was. Favorite. We gave yeah. Ernie Hudson the uh, John Wayne Gacy clown makeup. On the <laughs> <laughs> detail. Special effects maven, Todd Masters. Things and that Donna Anderson took it over with. I love it. Disturbing, <laughs> loved it. I, it's funny. I, I Rodman did a second episode for us a bit later, and but it was it was more problematic. I, it was one ninety nine and a hundred percent cures something which yeah, was yeah which I was not a good script. script. <laughs> uh, it, it it had the the whole payoff at the end was was, was kind of I'll, I'll be delicate and call it bullshitty. <laughs> having to do with melting someone down into soap and then yeah. the acid in the soap melting the wife. Right. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, on what planet does chemistry work that way? That's right. I forgot about that one. It was melting complete. Soap. I, also, I also remember from that episode that Rodman wanted to do a lot of crazy camera shots. That's Ed Tapia. And Gil had to keep telling, uh, Gil and I think Lee Webb had to say, no, we don't have time for that. No. <laughs> and then he would come up with an even crazier one. And Gil would say, no, we don't have time for that. I think he saw us as, as the means to some other end. Yeah, little, little did I know that he was the, my preparation for Brian Singer. <laughs> oh, yeah. I always love the way that you brought directors in right before a shoot and you kind of put them on the spot and asked for a shot list. And some of them were great with it. Um, but many of them were not prepared to actually like stand and deliver. And I was or direct period. Well, <laughs> Todd, I push that far. Yeah, but Todd, I, I was, I've like, taken, I've taken what, yeah, I've taken what Gil uh, was did and stole it. I mean, I bring directors in yeah, and right. I ask them uh, not, not for the whole script like Gil used to do, but if we have some sequences 
that are going to be a little complicated, I always ask the four questions that Gil used to ask them. Where is the camera? Where are the actors? What's the camera doing? What are the actors doing? And I do it over and over again. And I make them tell me that just the same way that Gil used to tell, ask the other directors to just answer those four questions. Can we, can we Where's have the camera? Episode? Where are the actors? What's the camera doing? What are the actors doing? Can we, can and we have it's an surprising when, when I tell them ahead of time that that's coming, it's amazing how prepared they are for it. If we could have an episode of, of shit that we've stolen from Gil, I would really like it. <laughs> it might be a two-parter. Well, you remember, Billy, I don't know if you guys remember uh, John Frankenheimer. Gil Adler. All of these directors, you know, brought something very different and they and their methodology of working was very different from each other. And I, it was a great class for me in oh. terms of learning how to deal with all these different kinds of directors. You know, like with with John Frankenheimer, we thought he was a good guy and we went to his house. So we spent some time. We talked about him being with uh, Robert Kennedy the night of Robert Kennedy's assassination and all this kind of stuff. And then we get to the show. And, you know, I, I hear from the set that we're way behind. And so I go down there and look around and I, I see we're way behind. So I call over John and very quietly behind the set so no one can hear or see. I, I challenge him and say, what are you doing? You know, we're not going to. And he just gives me lip service. And I realized with John, I had to stop production, stay in my office, call him to the set, call him from the set to my office sit him down, close the door. And only then would I really get his attention. And only then would he react to what I was asking him to do or not do or finish up or whatever. But it was really interesting. I tried to do it, you know, casually and on the set on the fly, nothing. He would just bullshit me. And only I, when I realized I had to sit him down. Uh, I, I do remember the, you beginning to pull your hair out because he just, you would go down it took a couple of times. You'd go down, you visit him and nothing. He would, he would not change his behavior right. one iota. Right. And finally, I think it was, you were just, you were really angry and you called yeah. him to the office and it was because he responded to that, that you realized, Oh, that's the way to deal with him. He, he's so old school that he, he, if you come to his territory, he's God. If you yet, call him to, to, to your temple, you're God. And yet, on the other hand, Billy Friedkin, you know, who Joel was way against. I mean, he just yeah, said, to me, you're going to pay for this. He can't ah. do anything in five days. I'm going to take your money. You're going to pay for what, all the overages. And I said, I, I, you know, Alan and I talked. We really want Billy to do one. He's a great guy. Great, great. You know, who, who better than Billy Friedkin, the exorcist to do Tales from the Crypt? And so, you know, Billy, I said to Billy, we're going to do it in five days. And we're not going to say to you it's five days and you're going to say it's seven. We're going to work with you on it until we all agree it's five days. But then once we say it's five days, that's what it's gonna be. And you know, he agreed to it and he, he did exactly that. And we had a great relationship with Billy and it continued for years later. I, it's funny, my, one of my memories of, of working, with, I've got two, two memories of working with, with Billy. Uh, one was, you know, it was a, a show about uh, rock and roll. And he, yep. he wanted the rock. He wanted the music to be done live. Nice. We, we hired actors. We cast actors who were, who were musicians first and, and maybe actors there. Uh, Yul, Yul Vasquez was. Right. And uh, Tina Carrere. And, and Tina right. Carrere and, and uh, Sherry and Rose. Hips. And oh, Sherry Rose. Oh, yeah. And Sherry Rose was Sherry also Rose. in the yeah. episode. Yeah. Uh, I, our, our inclination, of course, was to pre-record all the music and, and then have everyone lip sync to it. And Billy was totally against that. <laughs> and in, in having the argument when Billy just, we, we were arguing for about 10 minutes and finally said, okay, 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 Billy, you win. 
And the argument went on for 15 more minutes because he wouldn't shut up. <laughs> and literally, I had to say, Billy, literally, shut up. Stop. You won 15 I, minutes ago. I don't think he believed us. I don't think he believed that we agreed. We said, okay, you can do it. I don't think yeah, he... Yeah. The, 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 the second memory is, is one of the few notes I remember getting from, from HBO, and it had to do with the dailies from the first day. We were shooting at a, at a place down on the, on the, uh, in Venice, on, on the boardwalk in Venice, an apartment down there, a beach house. And there was a, there was a, a sex scene between Yule and Sherry Rose. And Billy, Billy was really pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And at some point, I guess in one of the dailies, when Yule got out of bed and, and before cut was yelled, Yule's erect penis bobbed into the bottom of the frame. I have a story. I have a story. Well, well, oh, oh, okay. Well, when 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 HBO saw the dailies, that's one of the few times I, I remember a panic call from Susie Fitzgerald because oh God, Susie, yeah, yeah. The, the the whole thing was, you know, we had brought Billy in, and everyone was convinced that Billy's crazy. He's going to make them do crazy things because Billy's going to overpower them. He's nuts. He's nuts. And so HBO had it in their heads that Billy was going to talk us into into putting that shot of Yule's erect penis bouncing into the bottom of the frame. <laughs> We didn't use it for that show, but we use it for many other shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Follow the bouncing ball. Right. Ba bouncing nuts. Um, didn't, wasn't Paul Hip also? It was yes, Yule yes, and yes, Paul yes, Hip. Yes, Paul yeah. Hip, correct. And, and Paul right. Hip is still rocking and rolling. Yeah. Okay. So what <laughs> happened was Billy Friedkin had that scene with Tia and uh, uh, Yule Remember in the bathtub, in the shower with the yeah. hot water yeah. and Warden had put Yule in leather pants and Billy kept shooting it, getting take after take after take with the hot water because they didn't want to stand in cold water and hot water. And that was towards, it was probably about five or six o'clock. Remember we were on a curfew in Venice. We had to be out of there. So I wrapped everybody out of their trailers, got everybody together. And I get this, and I forget who was the AD on that one, whether it was Lee or was it Terry. And they said, oh, Randall, you need to come back up to the house. This was, it was dark. You know, it was like about 9, 30, 10 o'clock because we were on this curfew. Uh, you got to come back up to the house. Uh, our actor's having a problem. I'm like, okay, fine. So I go back up to that house. And there is Yule in the bedroom on the bed. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, uh, man, I, I, I can't get these pants off. They shrank to me. So because there was a lining in those pants and then the black leather, it shrank to him. He couldn't get them off. And so you have to understand, I'm like, okay, let's, let's get, I am on the bed and I am on top of him and trying to get him off of him. Meanwhile, the guys are rolling cable because they have to get out of that house. So there I am on top of him and says, man, man, I got to tell you something. I got to tell you something. I'm not wearing any underwear. I'm like, oh shit, like I haven't seen this before. And so I'm like, don't worry about it. And talk about flopping. I'm like pulling and pulling and yanking and yanking on those pants. I mean, it was awful. Those things shrank right to his skin. Anyway, so there we were. But again, what cracked me up is nobody even batted an eye. And I am literally straddling him on that bed. And the guys, the grip and electric were all pulling all the cable and everything. But that was my memory of working with William Friedkin and Yul Vasquez. You know? When you know? I hear, Randall, when I hear a story like that, what I think more of anything is thank goodness there was no social media back then. Oh, oh, oh can you imagine? 
Oh, I mean, I think I think of some of the some of the arguments that I heard, you know, Gil get into, and the idea of somebody somebody would record that today. Oh yeah, you know, and and Gil would be Gil would be a YouTube star. Yeah, I missed my chance again. Damn. <laughs> you know, with Billy, with Billy, um, we became friends for a while, and he he wanted me to make a movie with him at Paramount. That didn't work because of Warner Brothers and Joel, and I didn't see him for years. And about three years ago. I'm in Los Angeles and we go into a restaurant and I see across the room, Billy Friedkin is with Sherry, his wife. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're having dinner. And Jeannie says to me, I think that's Billy Friedkin. I go, yeah, it's Billy. And she goes, why don't you go over and say hello? And I go, I, you know, I know Sherry too, but I don't think Billy's going to remember me. It was a long time ago. And so we just have dinner and we're eating. And all of a sudden I feel this, this hand on my shoulder and I look around and it's Billy. And he's hitting me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, man, how the hell have you been? God, I haven't seen you in 100 years. He, he knew who I was. He recognized me. And we had a nice chat. And then Sherry came over and we, you know, we continued the conversation. But I was I was shocked that he would you know, even remember because, you know, we've all changed a little bit what we look like. And and it was so nice of him to come over and say hi. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, he was very nice to us. I mean, I had no issues with him. He was very nice. And what I respected about William Friedkin was he didn't use a monitor. Remember that? It was all in his head. Yeah. And so what he shot was all in his head and he storyboarded it out. And yeah. I was like, whoa, that's the first director I've seen at Tales that did not use the monitor to, uh, you know, look at everything. Yeah, he, he, he was he, he was great. You know, he he had started as kind of a guerrilla filmmaker. And so when he yeah. took when he took up the challenge to, to do the show, really, he was reconnecting with his guerrilla filmmaker roots. And and so he was happy as could be. Yes, yeah. Yes. Always tail slating, too. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, he, had, he had this little like, I don't know if it was the wiggle of his ear or something, but he would tell the operator silently just to start rolling. And he would get some of that stuff. At the end, um, you know, there's real tears going on because he would go up and he would talk to Yule in his ears and said, say, you fuck your mother. Did you? And he would like whisper this like really dark fucking shit into his ear and then back out of shot and let, let him just kind of take it from there. And I literally watched him break down in front of camera and Billy got it all. Wow. And it was and then it was like, Dale Slate. It's like, that's so fucking brilliant. You know, See, and I, I thought I thought Billy only did that with Alan and me. <laughs> well, yes, there was a time. There was a time where I got uh, we had to take um, one of the actors off to change a whole chest prosthetic on him. On a dead man's chest, the episode in question was about a strange Haitian tattoo artist played by the rapper Heavy D, whose tattoos literally came to life. And I heard over the radio. I think it was from Patricia um billy friedkin's heading to the makeup effects trailer and i'm like oh fuck he's coming to kill me because he had <laughs> a reputation that you know he had given people heart attacks and, and he was you know this is pretty intense you know uh, he was a, an intense guy you could just feel the energy out of him and here i am like taking his his lead gluing rubber on his chest while i don't think they were doing much in there uh, he comes into the makeup trailer. I'm going as fast as I can to glue this shit on. And he sits down like as calm as can be and tells me uh, Dick Smith uh, exorcist stories for the remaining time. You know, just oh, like wow. you, you do whatever you want to do, my friend. You know, it's going to look great. 
And it was just like, okay. And and Friedkin, you know, totally changed in my mind. He was just this like yes. in, yeah. independent filmmaker that was there to uh, make the best five days he could. Well, I think a lot of the directors that we worked with, especially for me, were all really very good and uh, great to deal with and open to suggestion. Uh, I mean, I keep thinking about Bill Malone and Mick Garris and those folks oh. who were really terrific to work with. Uh, Russell, Bill Malone is so talented. What a talented man. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we had some really great directors. Um, you know, all in all. We Very were lucky fleeting. and great actors. Thanks to Victoria. I mean, we yeah. had terrific talent uh, that came through there. Because I think Vic, you had said to me once before, you always ask people if they want to come play. And that was the whole fun of coming to Tales from the Crypt was, but are you willing to play? Because you're going to get dirty. You're going to get bloody. You're going to have your heart ripped out or your head taken off. And are you willing to play? And you and Gene did such a great job of, you know, getting the actors to, to agree to do this, you know? Thank you. Thank you. It was a challenge, but it was also fun, you know, when you're going scale plus 10. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember the Randy Travis thing? Yeah. When we went to cast the episode Doctor of Horror, directed by Larry Wilson, co-writer of Beetlejuice, among other movies, we cast two country music stars, Travis Tritt and Randy Travis, unaware that, at the time, the two Travises were at war with each other. We had to choose one. And Gene came down to my office and said, can you please come down right now and, and talk to Randy Travis and uh, get all of his measurements like he's going to do this episode. And I said, what? She says, no, just come down and get all of his information. So I went down there and he was there with his wife slash manager. And I mean, he was so, he was a nice guy, very, very nice guy. And I, I, I so I got all of his information and uh, then it was, it didn't happen. But um, I mean, again, that's the kind of relationship we all had that we could do stuff like that, yeah. you know, and not be yeah. intimidated. That, that was, was a, that was a strange dynamic though, between he and his manager. Yeah. Well, and then what he wouldn't very work odd. With, he wouldn't work with Travis Tritt. Wasn't that it? Right. Yeah. Yes. It yes, ended yes, up yeah. being Travis Tritt and uh, totally wasn't Austin Pendleton in that. Yes. Yeah. I just remember going to Victorian Jean's office and, and sitting down with, with Randy Travis and having this nice conversation. But yes, it was a strange dynamic between the wife slash manager and Randy Travis. It was, I don't know, it was, it was very odd, but yeah. he was what, very sweet, what? very sweet guy. I, I remember too, what I remember also from that episode is that Travis worked three of the five days, but came in both days he wasn't working because yeah. he liked hanging out. And on the last yeah. day, he brought all sorts of swag. He bought yeah. boxes of CDs and t-shirts yeah. and hats for the crew. Oh, yeah, Travis I, Tritt was was a delight to work with. Yeah, he really was. No, he I was great. Talk to him. Randy Travis wouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> but his wife may have forced him to do that. Well. <laughs> and Slash was the other one who came in on his day off. Ed Tapia. Oh, that's right. That's right. Nice. That's right. Yeah. We're like, you don't work today. So, yeah, I know. I just like it here. <laughs> well, he, he loves makeup effects. Slash is a huge horror and makeup effects fan. Yeah. Todd, I don't know if you've ever heard. I don't know if you've ever heard the story about how he ended up on the show. He was a friend no. of one of the grips and the grip came up to me and said, Hey, I'm a slash is a buddy of mine. And he's a huge fan of the show and he wants to do the show. And I literally said to that, get the fuck out of here. He goes, no, seriously, <laughs> seriously. He's a fan. He's going to call you. I gave him your number. And I go into Gil and I say, Gil, a grip just told me that slash wants to do our series. And Google goes, if it's true, let's take a meeting. And so 10 minutes later, literally 10 minutes later, I get a call and a guy answers. The, I answer the phone. He's like, Hey man, this is Slash. I'm like, 
Yeah, right. Hung up. <laughs> it's like a cheap five minutes later. Yeah, he, he called back literally right back and he goes, No, seriously, this is Slash, Guns N' Roses. My buddy Rick told me that you're the guy I need to talk to. I get on the show. I said, Well, that's not actually true, but if you're really interested, <laughs> you know, why don't you come on in for a meeting? So I told Gil, I told Alan, and he called like, you know, half an hour later. He goes, I'll be there tomorrow, like at 5 30. It was late in the day. Mm-hmm. And he, I get a call from Dorothy the next day. He's like, Ed, there's a really strange guy with a top hat and dark sunglasses. <laughs> yes, the top hat. <laughs> and, and with this really beautiful girl next to him. And I'm like, okay. So I went out there and sure enough, there's Slash. I brought him back into Gil's office. Remember, we had a meeting. We didn't have a role for him. You guys met with him. We figured out what to do. I remember. I remember. And we, we put we him in Vince Lotto's episode. I, re- I remember it very vividly, especially, Ed, when you first came into my office to se- tell me about this Slash connection. And I'm like, uh, it's not just <laughs> I said sure let's get him in here if, if he's if yeah he wants to do it sure let bring him in for a meeting figuring I'd never we'd never hear from him again and then the next day he's walking in with the hi-hat yeah yeah and and here's the other part that uh, I think Gil might remember this but about 10 minutes after we tell him we want him to do the show I get a call from Geffen Records Hey man, this is so and so 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 from ANR. We understand you're going to do something with our client slash. Can you tell me about it? Ten minutes after that, another person like from CAA called. Hey, you're doing something with our client slash. Can you tell me about it? And another manager like ten minutes later from like the record company. I got like four calls within half an hour, all of them saying the same thing. When we sent Slash's schedule, I remember Gil told me make sure he got it, make sure he understands. And I remember t- coming in to tell Gil the story. It's like. I just called Slash, and here's how the conversation went. I called, hey, Slash, it's Ed. What are you doing? Uh, just sit, eating Cheerios and watching cartoons. It was three in the afternoon. <laughs> By the way, somebody from one of our shows just walked into my office that you guys haven't seen in a while. Uh-oh. And I'd like her to come over here. She was in one of the shows that Alan and I wrote. And uh, just come over here and say hi to all our old buddies. That would be Gil's wife, Jeanette. It's a reunion, isn't it? Hi, Jeannie. Good to see you. Hi, it's that Jeannie. (laughs) You look the exact same since the last time I saw you 10 years ago. You look great. Fabulous. They they, they don't change. (laughs) You look fabulous. Both of you. You You look terrific. Wow, thank you. You're very welcome. Well, I'll call you all this time tomorrow then for an ego boost. <laughs> we, we, we can be hired. <laughs> yeah, we can be had. <laughs> yeah. Now, can remind make- me, what was the story with Greg Allman? Remember that episode? Well, that, that, was, that was Billy's episode. Oh, okay, that was. That's yeah, because so, we had a couple okay. of rock and roll guys. We, we, we cast a couple of rock and roll guys for the background. Uh, Greg... Uh, Greg was another, uh, who else was in that? Because he showed up, right? Oh. And then he walked off. Uh, yeah, and Jonesy. So he, uh, uh, Jonesy from, from the Sex Pistols replaced uh-huh. him, I think. God, I, I, just remember, I just remember him being in the trailer and nobody saw him. And then suddenly he just like walked off and that was it. Yeah. We don't yeah. know why. I don't remember why. I, I don't remember why. I either. don't know that he was entirely sober at, at any moment that, that he was yeah, uh, true. amongst oh. us. And then the Tim Curry episode was, oh, was gosh. the one that I loved. Yes. Him playing all three characters. Yes. I, that's an episode I sat down and just watched a lot of the shooting. As he, it was mesmerizing. Yeah, the most and fun. And so nice. Such a nice guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I asked him why he did the show because I was so impressed that he said yes for us. And he said, because I, I was afraid of all the characters. And so I knew I had to take them on. <laughs> yeah, well, the story with that is, I, you know, we called his manager. We wanted him to do it. Alan, I had this idea, let's get Tim Curry. And I had seen him in the original Rocky Horror in London 100 years ago. And uh, she said, no, no, he's going to Rio. He goes to Carnivale every year. The dates you're talking. I said, well, I, I can switch the dates. No, no, he's not going to do it. And I think I called her two or three times. And the third time I said, listen, could you just see if he'll have lunch with me. I just want to meet him. I really just would love to meet him. And so she, she arranged a lunch and I met him, I met him at Chaya Brasserie in Santa Monica. Good memory. And, and, and we sat down and the first thing he said is he says, you know, I'm not doing this show, right? I said, I do know that. He said, okay, because you're not going to convince me to do this show. And I said, I'm not going to try to convince you to do the show. I just really wanted to meet you. And I'll tell you a little bit about the show, but I'm not trying to convince you to do anything. <laughs> by, the, by the end of lunch, he, he threw his napkin down on the table and he said, well, you've really done it now. And I, and I got really a little panicked because I went, I, I don't think I, what did I do? And he said, okay, I'm calling my manager. I'm canceling my trip to Rio. I have to do this. I, I, I have to do this. The way, wow. the way you're talking about the characters and the way we just had this great lunch, we got to do the show together. And, and he did it. And we became very good friends. And years later, after the stroke, um, you know, the, the Tony Awards has a, a show in, in L.A., usually at the, uh, the theater up on the top of uh, Mulholland and uh, 405, the Skirball mm -hmm. Center. And yeah. they have a dinner and they were honoring Tim. And I hadn't, see, I hadn't seen him for a number of years. I spoke to him, I think, once after the stroke. And it was really hard to hear him. And it was really, really difficult. Tim suffered a major stroke in 2012. And th this person come from the... Uh, from the Tony Awards said that they were going to do a dinner and they were honoring Tim Curry and that um, Tim had asked if I would sit next to him. Oh. And, you know, Jeannie and I went and we sat with Tim and again, his voice wasn't very powerful. So it was really hard to talk to him, but we were, you know, we stayed in touch for a while and, and I think about him often. I really do think about him often. Um, my wife, Michelle, Michelle is, is uh, works for the Ed Asner uh, Family Center, um, doing therapy for them. And every year they do a Christmas reading of, uh, of um, the Dickens play that they do every year. Um, and uh, Tim Curry was part of it this, this past year. And did, was he able to project? Uh, some of the actors covered for him, for his part. But he was in a chair, right? Yeah, yeah, he was in the chair. Yeah, he was in the chair. And he, he, he was able to hit probably 60% of his lines. Ed Begley Jr. covered for him a, a little bit. And uh, so did uh, Jason Sudeikis. It's a, Zoom, it's a Zoom thing they do for charity every year. Yeah. How, how, how nice that Ed and, and Tim were working together again. Yeah. 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 Totally. totally. Uh, Tim's going to be in Pasadena for the Monster Palooza this year in early June. Yeah, Michelle, Michelle wanted to go to that just to see Tim. Yeah. Yeah, so once we're actually, there's going to be a small... Tales from the Crip reunion looks like Fleischer's going to be there. Billy Zane's going to be there. In Death of Some Salesmen, Tim Curry plays three members of the same country bumpkin family. The father, the mother, and the hideous daughter, Winona. Tim is brilliant. He got nominated for an Emmy Award. There was quite a bit of a drama trying to get those makeups together because of, you know, classic Tales from the Crypt uh, fashion. You, you, you might as well tell it again because it didn't make the cut. 
<laughs> well, you know, I thought I had mentioned it, but I now you, I don't you remember did. it. Can we just run that tape? I don't know. You should tell the story again live because there was a moment where I think Gil wanted to kill you. <laughs> Go ahead, Todd. Which one of us? <laughs> it kind of leaves the house open. Well, are you talking about that, uh, the vacuum cleaner man that I got pulled over with? No, I, we, we were, we were, you were talking about something else just before that. Uh, well, yeah, I was talking about the, the development of the three characters, which uh, Randall, we had tons of time to develop those together uh, with Tim. Yeah. What I think like uh, the morning of, everything, it all <laughs> finally just came together. I don't think there was ever a test. I, I did find a Polaroid. Oh, I don't remember that being a test. Yeah, I, I, I seem to remember we threw them together because um, the, the mother character, uh, I recall being like the last one on the schedule. So we pushed it, you know, down the line in terms of building the prosthetics. Yeah. And, um, you know, to do three extensive prosthetics with accoutrements, plus a bunch of dead people, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for what, four days or whatever we had back then was, was uh, even for our quick you know, team was really high order. So I went to Lee Webb. And I said, Lee, we're, we're going to push mom down the schedule a little bit because we got to focus on the ones that are going to be shooting. It's just we don't have any time. I just <clears> want to <throat> confirm there's not going to be a rain cover day or you're going to move the schedule. <laughs> oh, no, uh, you're never going to. And I'm like, are you sure? And he, he, he confirmed it. And of course, that sounds like a best laid plan there. It was, it was the stupidest thing to ask. I mean, why even ask, right? Um, but of course, that's the plan I went with. And then a Friday late afternoon, and I get a phone call. Well, it looks like we're going to be going to ring cover. <laughs> whatever it was. And we we switched the makeup around. And um, all of a sudden, we're needing mom. And uh, so we, we just had to like hammer it out. And those are the days where we were cooking the foam rubber and we needed like four hours to bake it. And come Monday morning at like five in the morning, four in the morning, whatever, my phone rings and it's Patricia yelling at me, where the fuck are you? <laughs> Cause I had slept through my alarm and uh, cause I had just worked all weekend and I literally like, I don't even know what the excuse, I think Gil was like, that was like the third time he wanted to fire me. Um, and I had to go to the office, get the molds out of the oven, drive to Santa Monica uh, with the pieces still in the molds. And I was like taking the molds apart in the, in the parking lot, pulling out the foam prosthetics that thankfully were good. And fortunately Tim was so good about it i i kept him waiting for probably about an hour and we fortunately were uh we, we hit it off really fast and the makeup came together really well and the, you know the character just like uh came together like we had just added water and poof um we had mom um and you know tim was so much a, a part of the success of those makeups i mean they're just pieces of rubber and he brought those characters to life Oh, so no, no. off each other it was just just yeah. amazing so he was a joy he was a real joy to work with and that was I'm, i thank you for not firing me gil i probably should have been fired but i needed <laughs> a half hour of sleep <laughs> it was just insanity i don't think i've ever done that type of craziness before and i'm certainly glad i actually that. thought that the first two shots that that day were you <laughs> Well, I was in the him. show. I, I'm actually in the show. I, I do a cameo. Do you, are you kidding? What do you mean? Uh, I, no, that was Yvonne DiCarlo. I'm sorry. That wasn't you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, she and I uh, never were at the same parties together. You're correct. 
Um, uh, no, I'm actually. It's true, I, but Ivanka yeah, Carla was in that episode. You know that? Yes, yeah, she yeah. was. Yeah, she. Uh, yeah, no. It was I, the last. I think it was the last thing she's ever she ever did. Yeah, oh, really? I remember. Well, I think I told. I think I told you the story. Uh, we were shooting. What we were up at the old Paramount Ranch, or we were out Lake Piru somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And because I had dealt with Yvonne, uh, just talking to her about what she should bring, and you know, and she was coming from Ojai and how to get to. Because we were our base camp was in uh, Santa Monica, I think, at that point. And she brought all of her stuff. Blah blah blah. And I kind of pieced it together for her for the character. And it was raining. I remember it was drizzling rain out there, muddy. And I was walking by her trailer and she opened the door and said, oh, honey, come in and talk to me. Nobody knows who I am. Just come in and talk to me. I And so I sat with her for about an hour and she was reliving all of her days at Paramount. And now that since I am at Paramount, I wish now I could sit down and talk to Yvonne. But she was just going, she really wanted to just talk about the old days and how everybody thinks I'm Lily Munster, but I had a whole career before that, you know. And just a sweet, sweet lady. But yeah, she passed away not long after that. Yeah. Oh, she sent me an autographed photograph, but it was taken in about 1955. <laughs> I have the same photograph. <laughs> I think I have the same photograph. Yep. But yeah, well, oh my we gosh. We had a few finalists. We, we she was great. So she many great cast members throughout yeah. the seasons that I, I, I'm with you, Randall. I wish I knew a little more about film history like I yeah. know now. But, but we, you know. we were actually the last performance for Cleavon Little. Yeah. And that, that was entirely an act. That was you, Victoria, doing something so so generous. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can, was, was can you tell that story? What I remember is just him being a you know longtime friend and it just came about. And wasn't that with um, Superman? Uh, uh, no, no, no. Were they in the same one together? No, this was this will oh. kill you. Uh -huh. Robert Longo directed Sonia Braga, Dylan oh. McDermott, and that was Cleveland. Okay, and Cleveland. I'm blending yeah. two of them together. Um, that happens. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it just you feel like you know they're all together in the same. Um, it was just one of those things that I was inspired to bring to him, and you guys loved it. And he said yes, even though he wasn't feeling that good. No, <clears throat> the reason, the reason, the reason I loved it was when you came in and you said, you know, Cleveland Little, do you know who he is? And I was like, you, you don't mean, you don't mean the guy from Pearly, do you? The, the guy from Pearly? <laughs> I think you wanted to tell me. I think he wanted to tell me that he was in the Mel Brooks movie. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, no, no, this, this is the guy from Pearly, from yeah. from Pearly on Broadway, right? I was I was like blown away when when you said he wanted to do it because I'm like Pearly Pearly's going to be in a Tales from the Crypt. Holy crap! I was yep. so excited. Well, I'd worked with Cleavon in New York at the Phoenix Theater, and he had done an off Broadway play there. And he was, but he was he was feeling good. He was really healthy. And I remember walking into the fitting, and he was kind of ash colored. He he just didn't look quite like himself. But he remembered me from being at the Phoenix Theater all those years ago. Oh, but he wow. was such a nice guy. Oh my gosh, yeah. Cleavon, even, even back in the, I mean, he was just a nice guy. When, no. I first, when I first got into casting and I was an assistant in 1978, uh, we were working on a movie called Scavenger Hunt and that's when I first met him. And he was just lovely and just had a great sense of humor. And that's yeah. where our friendship began. We got to work with the most amazing people. I, I, I can think of the two or three people who to me were, wow, I can't believe I'm getting to, to, it's not meet. To me, it was working with them 
mm-hmm. was the exciting thing. Meetings cool, but working with yeah. them was cool. I, I I will reserve mine for for last, but but uh, yeah, there, there there were one or two people whom for me it was wow. Uh, who comes to mind for anyone else? It was, wow, we're going to get to work with this person? Wow. Douglas, come on. I mean, Spartacus. I mean, I, I worked with Spartacus. Kirk, uh, yeah, know, yeah. That kind of blows me away that, you know, I mean, obviously that, 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 I'm talking about the episode Yellow. Mm, yeah. Um, and it was, right. a, I mean, every episode was so chock full of amazing, detailed casting. You know, bravo, Victoria and team. Yes, absolutely, um, Victoria. Exactly. Oh, it's, just, it's what makes the show live on so well is that, you know, you saw a lot of these actors, you know, sometimes at the very beginning or early in their careers, and then to see some of them at the, just the period, the last show. Uh, I don't know how many shows yeah. Douglas did after that, but, uh, you know, it's kind of amazing in terms of a, uh, a, a little half hour television show to have this kind of, Yes. and to do it week in and week out. We I mean, can't every week out exactly. And new cast, Victoria. Like we new cast just, tomorrow, Victoria. It's funny for me. If for me, it was working with people years after I'd had massive, massive crushes on them. Sherilyn uh, Fenn comes to mind. Oh, that's right, Sherilyn Fenn. Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Elizabeth McGovern, uh, who worked with us in London. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, sure, sure, sure. And, and reconnecting with Emma Sams in London, same thing. I mean, I was just like, and getting to work with them, like I said, I had a huge crush on Sherilyn Finn in my early 20s and getting to work with her in my 30s was awesome. You know, she was very sweet. You know, she was great. You know, they say and never then, meet your idols, but she was awesome. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of fun ones. Um, um, Yellow done? was my first show that oh, um, Gil, um, yeah, introduced me to Bob who was directing. And he had taken the name of Tales from the Crypt off the script. He said, just read this little script. And I said, oh, I love it. It's all about men, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, now I want you to be, meet Robert Zemeckis. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's how it, it all started. And, and then to kick it off with uh, Kirk Douglas, you know, and his son was uh, wonderful. And then, uh, then you Yellow. guys offered me all of the other episodes and I was in heaven. So I'm ever so what grateful. A, what a show to start with, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah that, absolutely. That so such amazing inspired casting on that one. Um, yes. By the way, I emailed okay. all of you a photo of Victoria and I from, I think, 1986. <laughs> My mother's been on a kick lately sending me all these old photos that she's digitized. Oh. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's, that- it's, me, you, and, it's me, you, and Patrick Warburton from playing softball. Oh, my God. So that has to be 85, right. 86. Yeah. Yeah. There's this um, I'm just looking shot. over. There's this yeah. tracking shot at the beginning of uh, Yellow that kind of introduces the whole World War One oh, scenario. Right. Yeah. Mechus yeah. wanted to get sort of at Magic Hour, and Lance Henriksen were kind of following him on a techno crane all through pyro and stunts and flips and just the most insane Tales from the Crypt shot ever. And of course, you know, it has to happen now because the sun's setting. And the first take. Lance goes all the way into this little uh, foxhole where there's this sergeant that lifts up his hand and his hand gets blown off. And we had actually hired an amputee person and we made him an arm that we blew off on cue. But what had happened in the first take is the dog tags that Lance Henriksen was wearing just as he jumped into the fox hell, just out of, you know, one in a million chance, hooked around the hand and bent it. 
oh. and completely broke the mechanism. And um, Zemeckis is like, okay, take two, let's go. And we're like, uh, <laughs> things are <fucking laughs> broken. We just had an incident there. And I don't know what we did. The magic of Tales from the Crypt, we did it before that sun went down, but I, it was freaking tense. And uh, I'll never forget that one because, you know, we wanted these shows to be big and oh. something you ha- you know the mantra for uh, hbo it's not tv it's hbo and you know we're tales for the fucking crap we wanted these things to be great mm-hmm. and so we were mm-hmm. all just like you know really pushing it as hard as we could to the point where things were breaking and the, you know we had to rely on a little behind the scenes magic to make i you know, never thought of our little tv show as a little tv show never uh, never you know thought of I mean, it that way were- <laughs> you know you know Todd, you mentioned you mentioned uh, bob and the technocrane which my, I got my, the hair on the back of my neck went crazy because I, I remember one day Bob saying to me, uh, you know, I need a technocrane for the whole show. I, I, I do everything off the technocrane. And the technocrane was very expensive. We never, ever used it once during the whole, all, all the seasons. And yet here, Bob was saying, no, no, I, I need it for the whole thing. And I think I remember running into Alan's office, closing the door and saying, Alan, how the hell are we going to get a technocrane? Not, not only for one day, he needs it for five days. And he's not, he's like not giving up. I mean, he's not compromising. He's saying, I need it for, that's what I do. I do. And so we had to figure out how to get that technocrane. And I remember that that was our first experience with technocrane. And we used it a lot after that um, in other things. But I remember that being so, such a dramatic moment when we were thinking, oh my God, what are we going to tell about? What are we going to do? Our our boss one's bigger than, than, than we can do. Well, you know, we always pulled out the stops for Bob's episodes because he, yeah. he made us better. He actually commanded uh, a better show because we are all like sweating bullets working for Zemeckis. And there was a point, and I've heard this is like on every one of his shows, there's a point every morning on a, a Bob Zemeckis show where he says, I got an idea. And the whole crew just <laughs> moans. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Moriarty's uh, ep- episode, I remember her being impressive, and she ended yes. up w- winning an Emmy. Yeah, Kathy was great. I yeah. thought of one other one that, that was a big deal for me was the meeting, getting to work with Bob Hoskins, because he was so nice. Yeah. yeah, lovely man, mm-hmm. lovely man. I was such a fan of the movies he had been in, and then getting to work with him and having come into the office, and you, you and he developed a friendship, didn't you, Gil? Yeah, we became really good friends. However, it didn't start out that way. It started out as so he was very resentful of me because I came to the set. It was so cold and damp and we were shooting in this castle and he would come in and he was wearing like a jacket, you know, a sports jacket. I had my woolies on, my hat on, my scarf on and it was freezing. And I would say, Bob, Bob, you can't you can't dress like that. I'm going to get you a coat. And I think I had wardrobe bring in a coat and he came over to me and he said, Gil, I'm not going to wear this coat. I don't need this coat. I'm not cold. I said, I don't want you to get sick. You're going to get sick. You get sick. I can't shoot. I can't shoot. I, I'm going to lose a fortune of money. So how about looking at it that way and just wear the coat? And he goes, no, no, I'm not wearing the coat. And we used to get into this thing every day about him wearing the coat or not wearing the coat till like the, the third or fourth day became a joke. And, and that sort of, you know, put our relationship on a, on a friendly basis. And then we would meet in London for a coffee or a, or a drink. And I would kid him about where's the coat? How come you're not wearing a coat? And he would laugh at me because I, I had a big, heavy coat on. 
He was he was great. Whoopi Goldberg was also a wow. Oh, we yes. Oh, we we worked with Whoopi the days after she won her Oscar. I I have a memory of Whoopi. She we were at the at the Globe A One Pasta. Yeah. And uh, she came into the executive offices and she said, do you have any copy of any of the Tales from the Crypt? I'd like to read some. And of course, in our little, in our boardroom, we had, uh, we had them all bound. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll send the whole bunch over to your trailer. She said, no, 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 it's okay. I'll read them here. So I said, oh, I'll put them out in the boardroom. She said, no, no, right here is fine. We were standing in the corridor. So I, hey, I did what she wanted. I, I got her the comfiest chair we had. I put a stack of them, of, of the bound Tales from the Crypt next to her. And Whoopi Goldberg, that was three days after winning her Oscar, sat there in our, in our hallway, quietly reading Tales from the Crypt as everyone walked past her. Uh, Whoopi was the best. Whoopi was the best. Toby directed that one. That would be Toby Hooper, director of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Spontaneous Combustion, and Poltergeist. And oh, then, yeah. uh, you know, when we did Bordello, I got a call one day from Whoopi. And she said, congratulations, I see you're gonna direct the movie, but then and Alan and you wrote it and it's so excited for you. And she said, um, so just let me know what day you want me. And I, I sort of laughed and made light of it. And she said, no, no, I'm serious. I, I wanna be in the movie. It's your first movie, I wanna be in it. Just, just write a little cameo, like one day. And I, and I, I, I said, are you, are you serious? And she said, yes, absolutely. And so I ran into Alan's office and said, we got to figure this one out. And then, of course, the phone, st- phone calls started coming from her management. And the guy says to me, you know, um, Whoopi is going to do this and she's not getting any pay. So you've got to use your time very wisely with her. You can't have her there for a whole day. I know she's told you a whole day, but she, you got to shoot her out. And, you know, I think, I think she'll be fine if you get her out in eight hours. And then I said, oh, okay. And then a few days later, it went to six hours and then it went to four hours. And then I think it went to three or two hours. And so everything I said, when Whoopi gets here, get her in makeup and get her in hair. As soon as she's ready, bring her to the set. We're going to drop whatever we're doing and we're going to shoot Whoopi out. And it's not, it's only a few shots. And we did that. And we, we literally got her out in like two and a half hours. And I, and, I, and I think the two of us, Alan, you and I were like really nervous about it and really frightened that she's going to walk off the set and we got it done. And then we went back to what we were doing, even though we reorganized everything. And Whoopi got out of wardrobe and came over to me. She said, you know, I'm a little surprised at you. I said, what? And she said, well, why did, why am I finished? I mean, I, I, I planned on being here all day. I'm going to stay. I said, what? No, 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 no. You, you, you have to go. You got to go somewhere. And she said, where do I have to go? I said, I don't know. Your management told me I had to shoot you out. And first it was eight hours, then it was six hours, then it was like three hours. And that's why, you know, as soon as you got here, we dropped everything. You notice we dropped the whole scene and we just went right into your stuff. It's just, yeah, I knew you did that. I, I wasn't sure what the hell was the matter with you. And, you know, I, I, I never forgot that experience with her. It was just Gil, such a nice thing to do. I have, I have a, an additional memory to that. Ed Tapia that may not be true. So that's what I'm putting out there. I seem to remember that after you had your initial conversation with Whoopi, her manager called and said there was a painting that she wanted that was about 30 grand. It'd be great if the show bought it for her. Yeah. And that's when the hours started getting cut down. Yeah, when you said, we can't afford that. Do I remember that yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely right. Okay. Absolutely right. 
Yeah. Because that's when the hours started going down, when we wouldn't buy the painting. And that's why Whoopi never knew about it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, she never knew about it. We knew that. But we yeah. didn't know about it until it was after we finished shooting her out. Yeah. Because I remember the manager called and said, there's this painting she really likes. Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't remember how, but I found out the price. And I went into you mm. and you were like, wait, what? We're not, we can't do that. Right. Right. No, it's true. That's a true story. My, my favorite, the person that, that I was just thrilled with meeting was Buck Henry. Mm. Oh, okay. Now, Buck Henry, you know, to me, he was godlike because he wrote the screenplay for The Graduate. Graduate, yeah. And, you know, he'd been on SNL a bunch of times, just some of the best SNL episodes in the early seasons were, were Buck Henry episodes. But, you know, he, he was just one of the best screenwriters ever. And he played the MC. It was a, a, an episode called Beauty Rest. And I think Stephen Hopkins directed it. Uh, right. Mimi mm -hmm. Rogers. And, yes. And it was yep. about uh, uh, she there's a beauty contest. And so she kills her yeah. roommate because her roommate's going to win the beauty contest. And it's it's at a mortician's convention. Yeah. And the whole deal <laughs> is, right. is that the, 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 the winner is going to be dead yeah. by the time yeah. it's done. <laughs> And Buck Henry was the master of ceremonies. Yeah. And we wrote a song. And I wrote the lyrics to the song. Uh, and nothing gave me more pleasure than having put those particular words into, because I didn't write this, we didn't write the script, but I got to write the words to the song and I put words into Buck Henry's mouth. And to me, that was maybe the proudest accomplishment of my professional life putting words into that writer's mouth. Yeah. Tales gave us a chance to touch Hollywood royalty, oh, almost yeah. going back to the beginning. And that was really thrilling. Like when we, we, we talked about earlier, getting to work with Donald O'Connor was oh. also- Oh yeah. One of my favorite. Donald O'Connor. It's Donald O'Connor for fuck's sake. I know. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And what a nice guy. What a Delightful. nice guy. Delightful. Yeah, just Delightful. the greatest guy. You know, I once I once got a call from Joel in late in the seasons, and he said, "You know, uh, if you could work with anybody, a star, who 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 would you, who would you want to work with?" And I said, I, I, "You know, there are a lot of people. No, no, just just tell me who, <coughs> just tell me one." And I said, uh, "Well, <clears throat> you know, I'd love to I'd love to do something with Liz Taylor." He said, "Liz Taylor, you want her to do a crypt?" And I said, <laughs> "Yeah, that, yeah, that'd be great." Click just hung up on me, right? <clears throat> Calls me up later in the day and says to me, I'm going to write this number down. I'm going to give you a phone number <clears throat> tomorrow, five o'clock, five o'clock sharp. You call this number and, and you'll be talking to Liz Taylor. <laughs> I went, what? Just, just write this number down and you call this number. So I, I write the number down five o'clock the next day. I call the number and I, and, and, you know, I dial and, Somebody answers it, female voice. And I go, uh, hello, uh, may I speak with Elizabeth Taylor, please? And she goes, Gil? <laughs> and I go, and I go, and I go, Elizabeth? And she goes, yes. And I'm so glad you didn't call me Liz. Because <laughs> I had heard that, no, don't call her Liz. And she said, I, I hear you want me to be in, in Tales from the Crypt. I said, oh, yeah, I'd love you to do that. She said, well, what'd you have in mind? I said, I don't know. What would you like to do? <clears throat> she said, well, I, I would really like to. I've never been killed 
in anything I've ever done. So could you kill me? <laughs> I said, I, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that. I mean, you know, it'd be, it, it would, it would, I may have to call you Liz if I did that. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> and she laughed and she said, no, no, I, I think I would, I think I would do it if you'd kill me. Can you, can you, can you work on that and come back to me with a, with a, and of course it never happened because things got, you know, we went our way, then she went her way and it never came back. But I'll never forget that phone call when I, when I called and I said, may I speak with Elizabeth Taylor, please? Very sheepishly. And this voice said, Gil? <laughs> like, <laughs> Conversations you never expect to have. Right. The, ben Midler was on our uh, set. Well, her husband directed. Van Halsenburg. It was, right. it was her ha husband directing. But yeah. I will say that was a, like a wow moment for me that she was there while he yeah. was doing the work I, right. I, I love her the shortest tales from the crypt episode ever was <laughs> <laughs> martin ellen had to write ellen had ellen had to write an i think a seven minute crypt keeper so we yeah. had time it's funny that that was one of scott's episodes that would be scott nimmerfro i so wish scott was still with us scott was dick donner's head of development he was a writer too a wonderful writer full disclosure after Crypt, when Scott and I became friends, we wrote together episodes of The Outer Limits that I'm quite proud of, a screenplay we sold to Mandalay Pictures, and a couple of very cool TV series ideas. I have a feeling that Scott had had his eye on my first job at Crypt, story editor. When I got it, mostly because I was Gil's writing partner, Scott declared war on me. I don't blame him. In time, I came to see what an amazing asset Scott was as a writer. He wrote more Crypt episodes than anyone, ten of them. Some of the best, too. Oil's Well, That Ends Well, People Who Live in Brass Hearses, Confession, his bowling show in London. After Crypt and Perversions of Science, Scott wrote and produced some great TV shows. Pushing Daisies, Tron Uprising, Hannibal, and Once Upon a Time, where he was co-executive producer. Scott saw the world in such a particular way. He died of a rare form of cancer in 2016. 2016 was not a good year. And and Scott, you know, Scott Scott was Scott wrote some of the best crypt episodes of them all. Bar none. Just terrific stuff. He he and and sometimes the, the the most disastrous things would happen to his episodes where for whatever reason the director assigned to it would be someone he just didn't want or the actors assigned to it would be someone he just didn't want like with that episode. Yeah. And you know, he was desperate not to have that particular director because it was a first time director and he, he just didn't want that. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, when I think he was, he was reluctant when we, when we hired Corey because Corey did that episode yeah. and that was the first time we worked with Corey and Corey was wonderful. Yeah. But it was, yeah. it, it was, it was just another episode where, where Scott's, it, it, they just had terrible luck uh, on occasion. They, some of them had great luck, I think, uh, gosh, his Scott's episode. People who live in brass hearses. The ice cream one. The ice yeah, cream. the ice cream one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Russell Mulcahy, right? Yeah, yeah. It was Russell episode. Great episode. Oh, Billy right. Paxton. Bill Paxton did that one. Yeah. And uh, oh, I mean, kind of find that one. And too thank much, you for that, too. because Russell Mulcahy um, ended up hiring me again um, after that. So it was oh, nice. Russell. So good. And also, uh, I think I have to beg to differ with you in terms of what's the shortest Tales episode. 
If I remember correctly, <laughs> You Murderer was the shortest one because I think it was like 17 minutes long and Bob said, that's it. That's it. We're not doing any more. And it was all a subjective camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With, uh, with, um, well, there was uh, nothing to cut to. Betty Bacall's husband. Uh, oh, right, uh, right, right, right. Uh, right. And Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we made a great cast. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart, Isabella Rossellini, uh, John Lithgow, Sherilyn Fenn. Yeah. Done very noir like. Uh, yeah. It was actually a, based off a noir, I think, called You Murderer that had that POV uh, bit, which uh, really complicated the shoot, especially for us. So, well, the way that happened, you know, we were, we were uh, every year, you know, Bob would say, I'm not doing another one unless it's different. And he would look to Alan and me and say, You come up with what's different, then, you know, I'll be the judge of that. And so we, we were with Bob one day and I think we were having lunch and we were chatting about, you know, we went up to his house to talk about what he might do. Yeah. And he said, who's your favorite actor? Who would you like to work with that you haven't worked with? And I, I think we said Humphrey Bogart. He goes, yeah, Humphrey Bogart would be great. He'd really be great. He said, well, what would you do if you could make a movie today with Humphrey Bogart? Could you, would you be interested in doing that? And I think we both looked at each other and said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Not, not knowing where he was going with this. And then he said, well, you know, I think we can do it. If you guys could write something that, you know, used Humphrey Bogart, you know, and then we realized, oh, he's talking about taking clips, making a subjective camera. And all of a sudden we left that meeting totally frightened out of our minds because we yeah, scared, scared to death. It. But, but no, what, I, what, what, what Bob had pitched first was the idea of a single camera show from, from the point of view of a dead guy. Yeah. And, you know, that's when after lunch and you said, all right, that's my first thought. How, how am I going to do that, guys? Oh, let me complicate it. And I want the dead guy to be played by your favorite movie star, Humphrey Bogart. Right. <laughs> and yeah, from from, you know, as usual with Bob, when he said when he asked the question, how are we going to do this, guys? Bob had ideas in his head, but that was the that was the trigger for now. You have some ideas, too. Um, I got an idea. The, the the challenge was, of course, of, of the 18 film clips, Bogart film clips that we used, we had to find a logical story way to get in and a logical story way to get out. And so it was it was a Rubik's Rubik's Cube of, of storytelling, a puzzle making story and, and storytelling at the same time. Um, it, it was hugely challenging to pull off. Now, I, I, it's funny, one of my strongest memories from, from that episode is when Isabella came in for her wardrobe fitting. Yeah, yeah. And that was awesome because it, it was another one of those moments where you suddenly find yourself in the room with something quite extraordinary. And Isabella decided that she wanted to play that character like her mom in, in Casablanca. And so you're standing there watching Isabella Rossellini go into and out of you know, the, the, the changing room, moving into new outfits, coming out and saying, you know, do I look like my mom? And, and trying to sound like your mom and trying to be her mom. And, and you're watching something that, where else are you going to see this? <laughs> Except in this dressing room at Dells exactly. from the Crypt. I was blown away during, after that uh, session. Because Casablanca is my favorite movie of all time. I've watched, I watch it every year at least once. And to see her come out and look like that, I was like, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember Warden had uh, an ordeal trying to find the correct hat 
so that it was the same silhouette as what uh, Ingrid Bergman had wore. But going back to that, didn't Jerry Lacey play the Bogart part? Uh, Robert Statchy. Oh, that was it. Because I, I, I know there were two guys who did Bogart impersonations, and I, so I'm trying to remember which Un one. Fortunately, we got the lesser guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think his Bogart was terrible. But you remember Jerry Sorry, Lacey, Robert. right? Pardon? You remember Jerry Lacey, right? Who, that, oh, of course, he made a of course, career yeah. out of playing Humphrey Bogart. Uh, yeah. he, he, he's in uh, Woody Allen's... Woody uh, Allen, yeah. He was him. in the yeah, Woody yeah, Allen yeah. picture. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't remember who was it played that part. I, I think we were expecting Jerry Lacey and we got the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how did, we, uh, how did we get Roger Daltrey? That was another one of the awesome ones. That was... Oh, oh and... Totally. Hey, Everybody and, brought and, their albums out for him to sign. You know, he just got oh the plane from London, and everybody was bringing albums to. It, it was great. Yeah. Oh God, that that that, that was. Um, he was on Harry. a list. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't Harry. remember, but I know that we always like to try and get uh, music people in where yeah. we where it wasn't too challenging, but it would make an you know an impression. Right. Gary Fleeter directed the episode. Oh, oh yeah, Gary. Yeah, he still oh, yeah. calls me by my my official nickname. My, I have a Gary Fleeter nickname, which is fucking Todd, because <laughs> that that show, this is forever ambergris. And yeah, 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 yeah. It was another five day special where every single day we had like, you know, under 10, but quite a few uh, makeup effects gags that somehow we made in the, the time and every single one of them was complicated and practical. We did, we did not have digital effects yet. We were we were trying to do everything, you know, with smoke Practical. and mirrors. Yeah. And in fact, it, the what? whole uh, business at the end with Daltrey missing his nose, uh, I, I probably burned this story maybe, but I don't think it's on the show. Daltrey came in right from his flight from London. And, you know, we had a little life gas room there on Santa Monica stages or, yeah, it was Santa Monica. Yeah, Santa Monica is where we yeah, were. Yeah, Santa, Santa Monica. And we had to do an impression of his face and somehow flatten his nose because there's that whole big moment at the ending where we have the nose in the sink and we tilt up and he's got a big, you know, missing part. And, uh, you know, it's not like he has a small nose. He doesn't have a huge nose, but he has a significant nose and it's right in the center of the face. And so we had put a strap all the way around his head and we were like just gingerly trying to like tighten it so we could get it as flat as we could. And he just goes, wait a minute, mate. And he reaches back and just, just reefs on it. And his whole nose disappears into his face. <laughs> wow. And we're all just like looking at him like, holy crap. Did he just yep. hurt himself? And he looks at <laughs> it and he goes, it's all those years of rock and roll, mate. And he just was like <laughs> so into it. And all of a sudden we've got like this perfect cast where we could actually make a big hole in someone's head. And uh, it was the funniest damn moment. And- uh, uh, Oh, wow. Oh man. Uh, it's funny, my, my brother-in-law, Mark, worked as craft services that, that season. And um, he had set up a, a little shop. We, 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 we were doing extra food services for, for various- and, and uh, Mark would, would make tea every day. And when, when, uh, when Roger did the show, he saw, he, he met Mark and he saw that, oh, this is another English guy. And, and so Roger would stop by Mark's place every day and, and they'd have tea. Aww. And then one day my wife, my British wife came to, to visit the set because Roger Daltrey was there. 
And uh, my, uh, so I learned later, Roger Daltrey asked my brother-in-law, not knowing that he was my brother-in-law, about my wife and saying, all right, that's, I'm going for that. <laughs> Timothy Dalton was also a dog around the craft service table. I don't know if yeah. you know him, but uh -huh. he, he was like, we, we should have caged him up. You know, he was already the werewolf and we hadn't even put makeup on him. That's right. <laughs> was, was, Beverly, was Beverly, yeah, Beverly, was Beverly D'Angelo in that episode? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I remember, didn't something go on between them? There was, um, yeah, there was something. I think she was she I think she she was interested in him. I thought she she I'll put it this way. She found him really attractive and thought it would be great yes. if they could have a relationship. Yes. <laughs> well, he That's was a nice a way of putting it. He was a stud and I totally watched him at the craft service table oh, working man. it. He was just hilarious and it wasn't it wasn't subtle. It was the British version of it was the British version of how you doing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you remember, um, there was this great moment. This is Werewolf Concerto we're talking about. Yeah. And there, there was Steve Perry, I think, directed that. Isn't that right? Not not the guy from Journey, but no, he was a yeah, he, he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. stunt guy. And, and so Understood. we had a moment where he was going to show us how uh, we were going to shoot the transformation sequence, the big transformation from Timothy Dalton into Werewolf. And so Steve decides to, to tell everybody to move back. I'm going to show you what I want. And he decides to act it out. And he literally starts like ripping his clothes off and breaking things and like throwing his body all over the set and literally like trashing the place. It was so funny. And we all just like looked at each other and it was like, okay, that's lunch. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like a, you know, I think the set deck had to like totally rebuild over lunch. And it was just this funny moment, but uh, it's a good episode. We've talked about a lot of showbiz characters in this podcast, but there's one we haven't talked about yet. My strongest memory of working with the Crypt Keeper. Of course, he was a puppet. You know, we 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 know this for a fact that he was a puppet. And you know, as we were just discussing, I would go into recording studio a couple times a season and and do all the wraparound voices with with John, mm. um, and that was always great fun. And then we would take that in, and and you know, the Crypt Keeper, of course, was six puppeteers, some of them working anim uh, uh, animatronically, some of them were actually hands, yeah, yeah. and it was. When, because Kevin directed most of the, the Crypt Keeper segments, when he would yell action, and suddenly the puppeteers would go to work and the Crypt Keeper would sit up and be alive. And of course, you know, the, the, the beep track would be John, but I don't know, it was the strangest thing for that couple of seconds as the Crypt Keeper was being the Crypt Keeper, he really come seemed to come alive. And then Kevin would yell cut and he'd sag. He's right. sitting to the ground like he wasn't like he wasn't alive, and you'd go inside your head. Oh yeah, that's right. He's he's not real. Well, I remember somebody. I, I don't know when it was, but somewhere along the way, somebody said to me, "Who's the actor who plays the Crypt Keeper?" And I thought they were making a joke, and I I made a joke back, and they said, "No, really. Well, can you tell me the name of the actor who plays the Crypt Keeper?" And I, I went, "No, there there is no actor. It's a puppet." And it's run by six puppeteers. And this guy challenged me. He didn't believe me. And I'm like, no, no, no. It, is, it isn't an actor. Trust you think me, an actor can me. be that small? There is no actor that small. <laughs> and I remember having to convince him, which I never did, that 
the Crypt Keeper wasn't an actor. He was a remarkable character to work with. Um, and, you know, we, we were responsible for re reviving him. Yeah. And yeah. turning him into the franchise character that he really was not before we touched him. That's right. And as a, as a statement of, of how true that, that is, you know, Joel didn't give away much of anything, mm -hmm. but he gave us a merchandising deal. Which never really amounted to, to a hill of beans. It didn't, but still the fact was he gave it to us because yeah. he, as a recognition of the fact that we had yeah. added value yeah. to the Crypt Keeper as a piece of property. Yeah. It yeah. was worth more when we left than when we entered. Yeah. Hey. Sure enough. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished indeed. On the next How Not to Make a Movie podcast, The Making of Bordello of Blood, the dads from the crypt finally get their chance to ask all the questions as yet unanswered by Bordello's creative team. Can we stand the heat? Hey, we all worked for Joel Silver. Uh, Jason, Joel Silver isn't one of the dads from the crypt, is he? I guess we'll find out next time. See you then. podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content. This episode is dedicated to our friend Gene Scott Chamorro.